and welcome to the latest episode of the Oz Movie Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Pado. Sorry I've been absent for a while. I was at Splendor and then I got a cold and my voice was just ratchet, so I just didn't even attempt to record anything. I can imagine it would have been quite painful to listen to. Then I was away last weekend with my partner in Orange, so yeah, I have not been uh, very productive when it comes to recording things, but I'm back and I have three new movies to review for you. The first is the straight-to-DVD sequel to the Critters franchise with Critters Attack. Uh, next in line is the live-action remake of The Lion King. If you can call it a live-action remake, I do not, because there was one shot, I believe, that was real in the whole film. The rest was uh, created by CGI artists. Um, and last but not least is the first Fast and the Furious spin-off with Fast and the Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw, which is a mouthful, but I will be seeing... Well, well, I've seen them all, so I'll be talking about all three of these films. But before we get stuck into it, um, I just wanted um, to a few housekeeping things and get this out of the way first. So if you haven't yet, could you please review the podcast and subscribe? It really does help me out. It helps me get noticed among the many podcasters out there, and um, it will help me produce more content uh, as the years or as the months go by. We won't go years as yet. Um, and please keep the questions coming in for the uh, mailbag segment. I have quite a few already, but I would like to keep it going so I can introduce it as a weekly segment on the podcast. So if you can keep them coming into ozmoviegeek at gmail.com, that's ozmoviegeek at gmail.com. Also, stay tuned to the end of the podcast as I have some exciting news um, regarding a collaboration that I'm doing this weekend, which is exciting. So stay tuned for that. But let's get stuck into it. So the first movie I saw was Critters Attack. Um, I'm a big fan of the Critters films. They're uh, guilty pleasures of mine. These were 1980s rip-off movies, essentially, of the Gremlins films. Um, we had a few of them. We had Ghoulies. We had Munchies, I believe, was another one. And now we have the Critters films as well. But Critters actually received a cinematic release. They were produced by New Line Cinema, who actually did... Um, the Gremlins films as well. So I was looking forward to a new entry in this film. I watched the eight-episode TV series uh, A New Binge, which was terrible, but I did enjoy bits and pieces of it. There was a few voice cameos, including Stephen Merchant, which I loved. Um, but yeah, th this is a guilty pleasure of mine. That's why I'm talking about it, because I don't think anyone else knows that this movie exists. But I thought you know what, I'm going to talk about it. And I managed to pick it up on Blu-ray quite cheap. So let's get stuck into it. Um, the director is Bobby Miller and the film stars T uh, Tashana Washington, D. Wallace Returns, Ava Preston and Jack Fulton. The plot follows a 20-year-old Dre who reductantly takes a job babysitting for a professor of a college she hopes to attend. Struggling to entertain the professor's children, Trissy and Jake, Along with her own little brother, Philip, Dre takes them on a hike, unaware of the mysterious alien critters that have crash-landed and start devouring every living thing they encounter. So what did I like? Uh, I actually enjoyed a few things in this film. I enjoyed the puppetry of the critters. I thought it was great. All the puppets were... They moved fluently enough. They reminded me of the critters films from the 80s. I really enjoyed that they kept the design simple. It was the same, pretty much. Uh, incorporating some of the more enjoyable elements, including the Critters Ball, which makes a return from uh, the uh, from Critters 2, which is 
uh, pretty fun. It was uh, pretty much what happens is all the critters join together to make this giant ball and whatever they roll over, they just devour. And I did enjoy seeing that again. That was a lot of fun. Um, I also enjoyed the musical score. The score reminded me a lot of the 80s films and 80s films in general. It was a nostalgia trip for sure, but I did enjoy it. The film incorporates elements from the previous scores whilst also incorporating new elements, which was a lot of fun. I did enjoy hearing that again because, yeah, it was it's a pretty enjoyable score. It does have the same beats as the other films, but yeah, it's fun and it's enjoyable. The cast are fun as well. They're not very good actors, but they are not meant to be. They're just hamming it up and having a good time on screen, which you can tell. Um, Tashana Washington, who plays Dre, was actually really enjoyable. I enjoyed watching her on screen. She was quite fun. And I like the general plot of the film too. I like the idea that she's just babysitting these kids that decide to go for a hike. And then, lo and behold, the critters are lurking in the woods. And that was enjoyable. I also like the final showdown. It takes place on the university grounds that uh, Dre wants to attend, which is uh, very enjoyable. I just love the the setting of it, and I really enjoyed the final showdown. It was cheesy as hell and pretty bad, but it was just really fun, and I love that. I also like the introduction of the good critter. Um, there's a white critter that makes an appearance. The name escapes me at the moment. But I did enjoy that. It was a lot of fun too. Just something different from these franchises. I really wish that the Bounty Hunters had made a return, uh, famously from the first four Critters films. But they weren't there, but it's okay. I guess maybe down the road if this film does well, we might get another reboot or something, or a direct sequel even, which would be pretty entertaining. But I wouldn't even mind seeing the Critters just be in space, to be honest. That would be a lot of fun. But... Nevertheless, I do have a few uh, negatives with the film. The kills, uh, they are mostly cutaway shots, which is disappointing. I wish we saw more ridiculous gore. The film is only rated M here in Australia, but I would have liked to have seen a few gruesome kills, I suppose, which makes me sound pretty sadistic. But with these films, you do expect that level of gratuitous violence, I guess. It's just what happens with B-horror B movies. They are just full of just terrible gore. But I do enjoy that in these films. It's really weird, but I do. I think most people do. Um, B-horror movies have this, I suppose, this reputation to uphold and the reputation being that they have terrible gore and blood effects. And I would have actually really liked to have seen a bit more of that. But we don't have any here, unfortunately. There's a few uh, nasty-looking shots of the aftermath of the critters eating... Um, people there's a ranger who gets devoured and you see he's been eaten at the neck and it just yeah did, did not do the job so i wish we saw a bit more of that but of course they are working with a very uh restrained budget i suppose and due to these budgetary um restraints i i can understand the film probably cost ten dollars and a ham sandwich because it yeah but it's a straight to dvd sequel from warner entertainment so i wasn't expecting you know these flashy effects but it would have been nice to have seen something the story is very jumbled as well. It's pretty nonsensical. Um, when the critters attack, there is no real urgency. The characters seem to be just potting along, doing their thing. It's not until one of the kids is injured. And when he's injured, they decide that, oh, hang on, maybe these things are actually pretty dangerous. But if you didn't know already, they have pretty sharp teeth and they've killed quite a few people. Um, I think that this could have been done a little better. Uh, there's, uh, for instance, here's a, here's a sequence that happens in the film. Uh, one, one of the kids that are being babysat is injured. 
and they have no phone reception because critters. Um, and because of this, they are forced to walk to the nearest hospital to get attention for the kid. Their car doesn't work because the critters have torn through the fuel line and yeah, they're, they're up shit creek. But the problem here is that they are in the middle of suburbia. We see that where the house is located, there are plenty of houses around with cars and driveways and cars out the front. So we can assume that maybe a few of them are home. It is the middle of the day, maybe they're at work, but there are a few cars around, so there could be people home. So why not just knock on the door? I'm sure that Bobby next door has some bandages or maybe has a working telephone. We don't know exactly what's happened with the telephones. Maybe it was just the line in the street's been disconnected. One of the kids could run away. The critters aren't in the middle of the street. So yeah, and it's a nitpick, but it is something that's very annoying and something that really shouldn't happen in modern movies, I suppose. It's a cliche that's becoming quite tired. Um, the abrupt ending as well, I wasn't a big fan of. We had that awesome showdown that I previously mentioned and enjoyed at the university it's so schlocky and terrible but it was so enjoyable but the film just ends straight afterwards d wallace blows up some critters uh returning of course from the movies from the 80s she's the only returning cast member and i just wish that we had a i don't know five minutes at the end of the film for d to talk to these kids and maybe just a bit of a resolution there's not really a resolution and it just ends and it would have been nice to have a bit of finality. You know, that's what I want from my Critters films. I want finality. I want, I want it to feel like a nice little bow. Um, but nonetheless, I did enjoy this film. And as stupid as it was and as bad as it is, it is a guilty pleasure of mine. And I had a great time watching it. Critters Attacks is goofy and stupid but it, and just plain terrible. But that is exactly what I was wanting from it. This is the fifth Critters film, and at this stage, I'm a huge fan. I was pleasantly surprised and had a blast watching it. I can't give it above a 5 out of 10, but note that that doesn't mean I hated it. It is pretty high praise for a Critters movie. So that's Critters Attack. Now let's get into The Lion King. The Lion King is the latest live-action retelling of one of Disney's classic storylines. Um... It's directed by Jon Favreau and stars Donald Glover, Beyonce, James L. Jones, Chidicho Ejiofor, Billy Eichner, Seth Rogen, John Oliver, Alfre Woodard, John... Oh, I just said John, <laughs> John Oliver, and Eric Andre. It is a beat-for-beat -beat remake of the 1994 classic. Everyone knows The Lion King. Uh, it's made all the money at the box office when it initially was released. Then it was re-released and it made even more money. We all know The Lion King. Now, I'm going to get into this earlier on than I was hoping to, but I just want to establish my thoughts of these Disney live-action remakes. They're not very good. None of them have this originality that, or something different that would make them creatively acceptable. They are just drab, boring remakes of films that are far superior to what they are. We don't have any... I, I don't think there's any there's been any yet that I enjoy more. I think Pete's Dragon's the closest I've come to enjoying one of these films more. I didn't have a huge love for Pete's Dragon in general, so seeing a live-action retelling of that story was fine, and I really loved the cast in that film. Bryce Dallas Howard and Robert Redford and Carl Urban were all fantastic, so I did enjoy that movie. 
The Jungle Book I enjoyed when I initially saw it, but on repeat viewing, it does not hold up. And I find more and more flaws as I watch it. As a big screen uh, spectacle, I did enjoy it. But apart from that, there are quite a few issues with that film. Beauty and the Beast, I really didn't like. And it's a shame because I think the animated film is beautiful. Um, Aladdin this year, I think the same thing. I was very underwhelmed by that film and I really didn't like it. The more I think about that movie, the more I hate it. Uh, And finally, Dumbo, I haven't actually even seen. So these films are just cash grabs. They exist solely for the purpose to bring in box office revenue, which is fantastic from a business standpoint, but from a creative standpoint, I find it quite redundant. And I don't really understand why they get these big directors like John Favreau, uh, who's a fantastic filmmaker, recently uh, dabbling in a bit of independent filmmaking with Chef, and of course directing the Iron Man films. He is a really, really good director, and I would love to see him employ his talents somewhere else than do these live-action remakes of far superior films. If there is a film that comes out that is a lot better than the animated original, I'm totally on board for that. But for the most part, I have not enjoyed these movies. And I think that with the onslaught of remakes still coming, we have Mulan coming next year. Uh, When Disney Plus launches, we have a live uh, action retelling of The Lady and the Tramp and a second live action retelling of 101 Dalmatians with a prequel film starring Emma Stone, I believe is still cast, um, just called Cruella. And I just don't think that, yeah, these these films just don't have anything creative in the tank. They are just lifeless, drab remakes. And unfortunately, The Lion King does not uh, break this trend. I did not love this film. I think there are definitely some positives with the film, which I'll get into. But for the most part, it is, again, another lifeless remake. Um, so some of the positives... I did enjoy some of the visuals, and as you can tell, the visuals are quite impressive. These are photorealistic recreations of these uh, African native animals, and they all look, for the most part, pretty amazing. Um, The scene when Rafiki's holding up Simba at the beginning of the film is gorgeous. Um, There's a really good sequence with the hair and the circle of life uh, making its way back to Rafiki as well. Just the animation there is quite beautiful. Um, there is a lemur uh, hopping up at one stage and it looked like it was straight out of a, a BBC documentary. It was fantastic. And these visuals do lend themselves to be seen on the big screen. And I think that is probably the biggest takeaway from this film. And it was for the Jungle Book as well. These visual effects look fantastic. And whether or not they need to be used in a Lion King remake is another question. But here they do look fantastic uh the voice cast for the most part i really did enjoy uh donald glover as simba was fantastic um i also thought billy eichner and seth rogan were great as timon and pumbaa probably my favorite uh element of the film uh billy eichner as timon was something i had a, a big question mark over because i am a huge fan of nathan lane and i love nathan lane as timon it's iconic to me hearing that voice I think Pumbaa is probably the stronger character here. I am a huge Seth Rogen fan, so I enjoyed hearing that laugh come out of the warthog. I thought it was quite enjoyable. But there was a few voice cast members which I thought were not used to the best of their abilities. Uh, Chidicho Ejiofor being one of them. Scar is one of my favorite Disney villains of all time. Uh, And I love how energetic and 
flamboyant Jeremy Irons is in the original. He is so great. Uh, Be Prepared being my favorite sequence in that film, and it's just due to Jeremy Irons' voice as Scar. He is so on point in that movie. Here, Edgy 4 who is a fantastic actor. If you haven't seen 12 Years a Slave, please do. It is amazing. He was nominated for the Oscar for that film. But here, I just don't think he was cast very well. He just comes across as Disney villain 452. He doesn't really come across as the iconic Scar. Uh, His character design is neat, and he's probably the most interesting character design in the whole film. But I just don't think that it's there. The the vocal works of Edgeo 4, he can sing. He's quite good at that. But it's just his delivery, it's just deadpan and nothing energetic comes out of his mouth, which is very disappointing because I'm a huge fan of his. And that sort of leads in now to the negatives of the film. The unoriginality, as I mentioned, um, despite one new song edition I noticed, uh, this movie po- uh, possesses absolutely nothing original. It is very much just a retelling of pretty much beat for beat of the 1994 classic which is a real shame because i think that there could have been some things done differently and some of the elements that they've taken away which uh rafiki being one of them who in the original i think most can agree is one of the more fun and energetic parts of the film rafiki's sort of used here as just a plot device he's not really prevalent in the film at all And it's quite disappointing because I am a huge fan of that character and it would have been really nice to see some of his more iconic moments, you know, hitting Simba over the head with the, with his stick and stuff like that. It would have been nice to see that here, but it's not done, um, in at all really. And it's a real shame. Um, I also thought that, uh, some of the visuals weren't fantastic, um, The photorealistic element of the visuals I enjoyed, and I think it works for the most part, but the animation of the animals talking at times is quite poor. Their mouths don't move uh, in coercion with their uh, voices, and it is quite irritating and noticeable. One of the scenes being when Simba, as a cub, notices that Mufasa's passed away, the iconic flash zoom in, and the animation on Simba's face, I can visualize it now in the original, is so iconic and so sad. But here, the snap zoom into Simba as a cub as a real life line, I suppose, because that's what it looks like, is quite dull and doesn't have the same emotional impact. That could be because I've seen The Lion King half a dozen to a dozen times um, in my adult life, not even including the countless times I watched it as a kid. But I think that the use of CGI to make these characters photorealistic, it doesn't really come across. It's quite frightening at some uh, at some moments of the film, which leads into an issue I have with who is the target audience for these films? Is it the people who watched it as a kid? Or is it kids and a new generation of kids to watch Disney films? Or is it both? Because I'm not really sure. I think that if kids, small kids, were to go and see this film, they'll be quite terrified. There's a scene when Scar is eating an antelope and he turns around to talk to Nala, and he's got blood dripping from his mane. And I thought that was quite brutal and uh, imagery for a kid to be quite terrified at. And I was looking at it myself and thinking, oh, if a kid was here right now, they would probably be terrified. That is a real lion eating an antelope, or that's what it looks like. And that is quite terrifying. So the character designs themselves could have been done a bit better with this CGI aspect as well. If Nala didn't have her green eyes, I honestly would not be able to tell her apart from the other lionesses. 
she looked very much like the others. Uh, the only difference being, of course, her green eyes. And that is, of course, the throwback to the original uh, 1994 animated classic. But I just wish there was more character definition on these these characters. Um, there was a post recently uh, of CGI artists recreating the characters in a 3D cinematic way, but still possessing their facial um, expressions and whatnot from the original film. And I think that honestly would have worked a lot better than having this photorealistic Lion King. Um, and again, it's going to work for some people, but for me, I just didn't think that it worked. It just looked very lifeless and a lot of the emotions weren't conveyed in the way that they were in the original, which is a real shame because it is something that makes the original cl uh, classic. It It is just really well done and here it just doesn't feel that it's there exactly. There was also some CGI shots I thought that weren't up to scratch. There was a scene uh, when they're singing... Um, uh, the uh, lion sleeps tonight and they're walking through the different um, parts of the jungle um, and um, he's you know he's playing with Nala and whatnot in the in the jungle and they realize Timon and Pumbaa are realizing that they're in love some of the CGI here wasn't very good in their background and then of course when they're singing Akuna Matata they walk past the waterfall and the waterfall looked shocking and it was really noticeable when the water was hitting the ground. I thought that's an undone CGI shot. And I don't blame anyone in particular for that because as there are protests and whatnot going online at the moment that have been, that actually stemmed from Sausage Party, pretty much CGI artists aren't paid as well as what they should be. They're doing a lot of free overtime hours and that just results in the fact that they don't want to do the work. They're under the impression that they don't need to do the work because they're not being paid for it, which is completely understandable. So these CGI artists are rushed to get certain projects out in a, a certain um, amount of time. So for instance, The Lion King has spent a year and a half in post-production, I believe. So after they recorded the initial voices and putting everything together, they've got a year and a half to release this film, which might sound like a lot of time, but you have a look at the detail and the amount of effects shots that are used in each scene and you think about that in the context of releasing a film, I can imagine it would be quite draining for these artists to get this project out on time. And I just don't think that certain effect shots are up to scratch, especially when you look at probably the best example of this was Black Panther. Black Panther uh, and its visual effects are shocking. And if you look at the end fight sequence between Killmonger and Black Panther, it is so un underdone and it looks awful. And it's a shame because the film does, for me in particular, it does falter in that final act and that's due to that poor CGI. And I do feel sorry for the CGI artists who are given a deadline to get these projects out, but they're not getting paid to do, they're not getting paid well enough to do that. So it's a real shame because there's such a rush to get these projects out, especially by Disney, Marvel and all these, um, all of Disney's, projects at the moment and it's a real shame because it does show like i said they're just unfinished cgi shots and it, it it is really noticeable and it does detract from the film if you're looking through a critical lens at it which i do because it's just what i like to do um the whole time during the film too i just kept thinking that all the sequences that i was enjoying were just done so much better in the original like i mentioned the be prepared sequence being my favorite sequence in the original it's just due to those beautiful colors that are just very vibrant and come straight off the screen 
when you're watching the remake now and they're in the elephant's graveyard, there are some nice uses of shadows, but the actual colors themselves, the green being very prominent um, in the 1994 classic and just Jeremy Irons' energetic performance as well. It's just missing here and it just doesn't feel as good as that 1994 original animated classic. And it's just a real shame because I think that if they had done a few things differently, it could have been very, very, very entertaining. Um, like I mentioned as well, Scar just it was just very underdone and he wasn't the only character. Beyonce as Nala as well, I felt was very underutilized. Uh, James L. Jones returned as Mufasa and he just delivers the exact same lines again. The difference being that he's about, what, 25 years older, so his voice is a lot deeper and um, it, it is noticeable as well. And I, I just kept thinking, if you can get James L. Jones back, why couldn't you get Jeremy Irons back? Apparently, Hugh Jackman was originally cast as Scar but pulled out due to scheduling conflicts. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. That was a rumor going around. Uh, Hugh Jackman could have done a fine job, I'm sure. And I think because of his musical background, he could have been quite entertaining as well. But I just wish that it was Jeremy Irons, and it just was a real disappointment to me. Um, Beyonce as Nala, I wasn't a huge fan of either. I thought that Nala in general was just a bit of a miss. Um, some of the scenes were just rushed over between her and Simba. Their relationship didn't feel like it built as well as it did in the original, so I didn't really buy them being together. I understood when they first see each other how happy they are to see each other. But just the passing of time just didn't feel uh, as authentic as what it did in the original. Uh, John Oliver, I did enjoy as Zazu. Um, he was quite entertaining and he's got a great voice for it. But a lot of his humor didn't land. The new additional jokes just weren't as funny. Uh, there were a, a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, I just didn't love it. But guys, that's pretty much me done on The Lion King. Um, my verdict is... Bland, uninteresting, and dull. The Lion King offers very little creatively and is yet another lifeless Disney remake. There are things to enjoy here, and if you are a fan of the Disney live-action remakes, then you're going to have a blast, but this one just wasn't for me. I'm going to give it a 4 out of 10. Like I said, guys, this movie is polarizing fans, I suppose, but there are a lot of people out there that enjoy it, so if you enjoy it, I'm glad that you did. It just was not for me. And last but certainly not least is The Fast and the Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, this is the ninth installment of the Fast and the Furious franchise and the first spin-off film, so I was interested to see exactly how they would handle it. They listened to the fans because people really loved Hobbs and Shaw's relationship during uh, Fate of the Furious. These movies are ridiculous, they're crazy, they're insane, but they are a lot of fun and they have filmmakers who understand exactly what these franchises are about. They're not meant to be taken seriously. They're meant to be just fun, disposable action, really. And they fit the American summer blockbuster season perfectly. So coming into this movie, I was keen to see what would happen, but I wasn't a fan of the trailers. They look like they showed the whole movie. But surprisingly, they didn't. Um, so this film is directed by David Leach. Uh, part of the directing duo that handled the first John Wick film. He's also directed Atomic Blonde and Deadpool 2. So quite an impressive resume heading into this film as well. So I'm a, I'm a fan of what David Leach has done. Uh, Atomic Blonde, probably my least favorite film out of his filmography, but I do enjoy that film nonetheless. 
Uh, the film stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Jason Statham, Idris Elba, Vanessa Kirby, Cliff Curtis, and Helen Mirren pops up for a brief cameo there too. Um, so let's get into the plot. Uh, so the plot follows lawman Luke Hobbs and, and outcast Deckard Shaw, uh, who form an unlikely alliance when a cyber-genetically enhanced villain, played by Idris Elba, threatens the future of humanity. So what did I like? Um, I really like the tone of this movie. Like I said, they know exactly how stupid this franchise has become. This essentially is now a superhero spy espionage franchise but they really do understand exactly what they're doing it reminded me a lot of a 1990s action film that's the kind of vibe i get here like a cliffhanger or a last action hero type vibe and i really enjoyed that there was a throwback to 90s action films and the plot is ridiculous exactly like films like the rock um no connection there uh, the rock the rock of course being the michael bay directed film starring nicholas cage and Sean Connery when they have to break into Alcatraz, but it's that similar kind of zany, ridiculous plot that makes this film what it is. And I really enjoyed that the tone was handled really well by David Leitch and the cast. Uh, the Rock and uh, Jason Statham have terrific chemistry. They were the best part of The Fate and the Furious. They're back and forth during the prison breakout sequence. And then, of course, here, just their back and forth during the whole film is just really enjoyable. It, some of the dialogue is a bit cringy, the insults are a bit stupid, but they're fun and they sort of make this movie what it is. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, with the cast as well, I actually really enjoyed Idris Elba. He plays Brixton, the villain, and I thought he was really, really enjoyable. He's hemming it up like crazy and having so much fun on set with these guys. And it was really nice to see that. Idris Elba is one of the best actors working in Hollywood at the moment. Uh, he has a very, I suppose, deep and dramatic side to him that he's shown in previous years and he has been uh, a force to be reckoned with uh, recently and i just really enjoyed that he's taken a role like this even though he's he's a tour de force at the moment so it was really nice to see that too i also really like vanessa kirby she plays uh luke shaw's um deckard shaw sorry luke shaw i don't know what i'm thinking there deckard shaw's uh sister and i thought she was fantastic in the film she handles herself really well on screen the chemistry with The Rock isn't exactly there, but it's it works well enough that you believe their eventual flirtatious um, and romantic endeavours, I suppose you'll say. But I, I did enjoy her in the film. I thought she was quite enjoyable, and I would really like to see her do more, and hopefully she returns to the Fast and the Furious franchise. That would be nice to incorporate her, I suppose, a little, a little more into this franchise. Um, I really enjoyed the action set pieces. Coming from David Leach, I did expect the film to look fantastic and flow really fluently. And the action set pieces, for the most part, are quite enjoyable. There's a lot more CGI here than what Leach has dealt with previously. I suppose Deadpool 2 being the exception. But there's that fantastic uh, stair se staircase sequence in uh, Atomic Blonde, which was fantastic. And of course, the whole of the first John Wick film. And I think that he is a really good filmmaker and I think he understands exactly what kind of action set pieces are meant for these big budget blockbusters and what people are expecting to see. He definitely has a lot more quick cuts in this film than what I was hoping for, but there is that enjoyable aspect still, even though it isn't as fluent as what a John Wick or Atomic Blonde was, but it, it is still very enjoyable, and I think he understands action in these big budget scenarios, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, 
With the action set pieces as well, I think my favorite was the set piece in London. I really enjoyed the car chase sequence. It's over the top, doesn't make any sense and defies all logic, but it is very entertaining still to see these guys tear up London and it was really entertaining. Um, there was a little bit of a surprise too, which I'll talk about at the end of the podcast just because I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen it. But there are two actors that show up that was a real surprise to me. And looking at the cast, I can see, and the director, why they are in the film. They've obviously got a relationship with a few people here. And I'll explain that at the end of the movie. But I was really happy to see them in the film because they're not in any of the marketing, which I enjoyed. And I enjoyed the fact that it was a surprise. It was very refreshing. Um, There's a cool little Italian job reference in this film too, which leads me to another positive. I really like that... This film um, really does pay respect to its audience. It really does know when to have the right amount of references and the the right amount of, I suppose, um, I suppose callbacks as well. The the reference to Italian Job, of course, being Jason Statham starring in the Italian Job, but F. Gary Gray, who directed the Italian Job remake, is actually the director of Fate of the Furious too. So that's a double double reference there and I really just enjoyed the fact that they had that in the film they don't need to but they do respect their audience because these films make a bucket load of cash and I think that is just something that's it's nice to see that they do respect their audience enough to give them these little references so I really did enjoy that now on to a few negatives I did have the film wasn't all sunshine and rainbows the runtime for this film is absolutely absurd. It nearly goes for the two and a half hours, which is just insane for a Fast and the Furious movie. The last couple have had this runtime, but there is a point in the film where I did think it was going to end. There's an action set piece in Russia, which was quite impressive, and it's a very big set piece. And I'm like, oh, the movie's coming to an end. But then I remember seeing in the trailer the really cringy-looking Samoan stuff, um, paying homage in reference to um, The Rock's heritage, of course. But I was expecting... The film to end there and i think it really could have but i'm glad that it didn't because the samoan stuff is fun but the the runtime for this film is absurd and i think for a spin-off film they probably could have dialed it down this movie cost 200 million dollars reportedly to make which is crazy for it to make its budget back they're saying it has to make between 550 million to 600 million dollars worldwide which i'm hoping it does because i would like to see it succeed but at the same time that is a ridiculous amount of money to spend um on a film like this it's a spin-off and it's meant to be smaller than the big tentpole films of the franchise so that was a bit of surprise to me to see that budget and i think that if the film had been cut down maybe 20 minutes in runtime it would have been a lot cleaner and probably more enjoyable because the samoan stuff in the film could have honestly been a whole nother act or another film mind you sorry in in a, a sequel down the road but instead we've got it shoehorned into this film and i just feel that it could have been used later on uh the cringy dialogue as well is a bit of a negative I, and i understand that it's meant to be cheesy and over the top but i'm not necessarily referring to how it plays into the film and the way it's used but just the fact that it exists if you have a look at films in this franchise they've all got the family tropes that Don Toretto, played by Vin Diesel in every other film, believe it's a contractual obligation for him to say family at least 40,000 times. So I feel that that has continued on here because The Rock says family quite a few times and that's a general theme that has been present since the first Fast and the Furious film is family. So I just think that 
um, that some of the cringy dialogue was it was very noticeable in regards to that. But nonetheless, it doesn't detract from the film too much, but it is there. Uh, the world jumping as well, playing into that idea of just excess and how big this film is, the world jumping is quite prevalent in this film. They go from being in Los Angeles, then to London, then we're in Russia, then we're in Samoa. It's just a lot to take in. And I just think that if it had been a little more grounded, it wouldn't have felt overstuffed and saturated really because that's what it does feel like. It feels oversaturated and I don't think we really needed to be in that many locations. Nonetheless, it's still enjoyable. Um, I also thought Eddie Marsden's scientist was a little over the top too. He was the weakest element of the cast, which is a shame because I really do like him as an actor. But the fact that he was in this movie and then thrown away so so easily as well, I just felt that he didn't even need to be in this film. They could have got any other actor to play it, and the fact that it was Eddie Marsden was a bit a bit iffy. Some of the plot details as well. We go over to Russia uh, and meet a character that turns up for a little bit of the film we find out that there's some romantic connection between Deckard Shaw and her uh that whole thing felt thrown in and felt like it was maybe set up for another spin-off which just felt very forced I don't think it needed to be there you could have cut that sequence entirely from the film but nonetheless it's there and we have to deal with it all right so my verdict for the film Hobbs and Shaw is cliche over the top and at at times it's downright terrible but I love this movie all the more for it with the likable leads in Jason Statham and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, fun action sequences and a bonkers storyline, Hobbs and Shaw is worth the price of admission and I'm giving it a 6.5 out of 10. Now brief spoilers here for the next minute and I'll discuss those two appearances by those two actors. So you've been warned. 3, 2, 1. Uh, Ryan Reynolds shows up for a quite a prominent role actually as Locke, a CIA agent who pretty much gives the... Um, the case to uh, The Rock during the film and he was very funny I enjoyed seeing him there's a quite uh, two very funny uh, post-credit scenes with him in that I actually really enjoyed but uh, I think the reason he was in this film is because of the Deadpool 2 connection he is quite good friends uh, reportedly with David Leach now so I suppose keeping that working relationship strong and um, I suppose hoping that David Leach returns down the road to direct another Deadpool film uh, he does show up for a bit, which was uh, very entertaining to see. And a surprise, like I said, I had no idea was in this film at all. Uh, Kevin Hart also shows up, who plays Air Marshal Dinkley, um, for a bit of comedic relief. He's only in two sequences as well, but I did enjoy seeing him in the film. It was quite funny as well. And the fact that he was in the film, I think, was he has a quite a good working relationship with The Rock. He's appeared in Central Intelligence with him and now the Jumanji film. So they obviously have... Um, a fair bit of chemistry and are good friends. So that was a nice little cameo too. But I did appreciate seeing them there. And like I said, it was a complete surprise. It was kept out of all marketing, which was very nice to see. If you had gone on to their IMDb's, you'll see it now as uncredited performances, but it was kept very silent. So I was very pleased with that. So that brings this week's episode to a close. But before I go, like I mentioned at the start, I do have some exciting, um, an exciting announcement. So... I am working on a collaboration at the moment with my good friend, Mr. Alec Wright, who is a part of the Pub Test podcast. Um, He'll be joining me on an analysis of Jordan Peele's sophomore effort, Us. This podcast will be uploaded very shortly. We'll be uploading it in the next couple of weeks. Um, And pretty much we'll just be doing an analysis of the film. 
Alec coming in the middle of the road, feeling very lukewarm about the film. Me, I quite love it. So it'll be interesting discussion. We'll be talking about it thematically, critically, and just analyzing the film in general, breaking down certain story beats, what it means, what it mightn't mean, and just our general theories and uh, analysis of the film. So that'll be a lot of fun, and I'll have that up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Next week's episode will be a review for the South Korean film, which I'm very excited for, Parasite, which won... um, It it was the best on show at the Cannes Film Festival, which is very, very exciting. Um, And I'm happy that the Tamworth Theatre has actually got it. So I'll be able to watch that one, um, which I'm very excited about. And I finally get to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, It premieres next Thursday, so I'll have a podcast up hopefully by next Sunday of both those films which I'm very excited for. And that brings, yeah, this episode to a close. So thank you very much, guys, for listening. Uh, Like I said at the start, if you could please subscribe and review the podcast, it does help me out a lot, and that would mean a great deal to me. Keep those questions coming to ozmoviegeek at gmail.com for the mailbag. That would be fantastic. Thanks again, guys, and until next time, peace out.